Hello and welcome to Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Jake Bruckman, founder and CEO of CoinFund. Jake has built CoinFund into a preeminent institution in the asset class and has a track record of being early to emerging trends and verticals. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senius Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senius Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Senior Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs of Senior Capital. As you know, with this show, we love to interview leading investors, executives in the crypto asset management space across hedge funds and venture funds. And today's guest is early. He's early to everything. He's early to specific ideas within crypto. He's early to forming an investment thesis around crypto. And he's built an institution built off that early insights that I don't I don't think many others possess. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce everyone to Jake Bruckman of CoinFund. How's it going, Jake? It's going really well. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, I figured as always, it's important to paint a picture. And so wanted to just introduce you to the audience. I lo- loved your background. Would love to hear you know, where you grew up and then also how some of your your early work led you to the insights to start investing in crypto. Absolutely. So I was born in Russia. My family is Russian Jewish. We came to the United States in 1990 as essentially refugees from that. We grew up here around New York, New Jersey. My parents were both basically computer scientists and ended up being some of the first folks like in the 90s to go and you know be programmers on Wall Street as that was the thing to do at the time. And so I grew up in a household where technology was always around. We had a computer in our house in like 1991 or 1992. I remember it was like a Big Sun workstation. And as a result, I kind of became an early adopter of technology like throughout my life. So I learned how to, I learned about computers early. I learned how to code in C when I was 14. Got on the internet in like 1994, you know, and throughout my life, you know, I, I, kind of adopted mobile early, adopted electric vehicles early. And one of the things that I adopted early was cryptocurrency. So I got to know Bitcoin in 2011. Some One of my friends showed it to me and that sort of started my crypto journey. And also the, the I kind of glossed over 10 years there where I had a kind of traditional career in mostly financial and pure technology. So I worked in quantitative trading, research and development at hedge funds for a bit. And then I went and kind of went to pure tech at Amazon. I was a technical product manager and engineer in ad tech and ran a, ran a big team. And then kind of came back to be a CTO of an alternative data company in fintech again before starting CoinFund. So that, that's a little bit about 
my journey. I'd love to dig on how what what the process is like to be early to something, right? Because yeah, being early typically means that it's non-consensus. What like, yeah. what triggers something in your brain when you spot something you find interesting, and then what causes it to trigger, and then what does the next six to twelve months look like after that? Once you kind of have this initial sensation that something is happening that other people are not aware of. I thought about this question a lot because, you know, when I think back to kind of those early days of Bitcoin, maybe between, you know, 2011 and 2015, call it like there was definitely like a certain subset of people who would see this technology and then immediately dismiss it. They would just say it's not real or it's not backed by anything and therefore it doesn't matter or it just doesn't work the way traditional things work. So I don't want to know anything more about it, you know, or I just don't believe that this will kind of get big for any reason. Right. And then there was like another group of people who were like, who looked at Bitcoin and they're like, yep, that's the thing. That's the thing we need. This is inevitable. Right. And so like what separates <laughs> those two groups of people? I mean, I think, I think it's a little bit like contrarianism for me personally. I've definitely been like a, I have kind of like a scientific mind. So my mind's like natural reaction to new information is to like evaluate it for, for truth. Like, and I often find myself kind of like in a contrarian position because a lot of people just sort of assume things about other things and I want to like evaluate those things. And then maybe like another component of it is a little bit like naivete, right? Like I feel like the more people spend time in a certain vocation or area or area of research or whatever it is, right? Kind of the more, in a way, the more they buy into like the institution of that thing, into the status quo of that thing. And it becomes like much more difficult to get out of that mind frame and like think about something new. And so when I say naivete, it means like you're coming to a problem with a really open mind, with a almost like a childlike desire to like kind of evaluate it and, and see and see if it's real or not. And that's kind of how I came at crypto. But, you know, but I also was like really set up to, you know, to believe in crypto in a way early because I was always on the cusp of finance and technology. Like my, again, my parents worked on Wall Street for, for, for many, many years, right? And like I valued investing, even though I didn't study economics or anything. I was studying computer science and math. And throughout my kind of early career, I was also looking for you know, once, when I started to work and started to earn a little bit of extra income, I was starting to look for asset classes that I, I wanted to invest in. And stocks seemed really, really boring. I was looking at alternative asset classes. I looked at like, you know, peer-to-peer -peer lending back in like 2005, 2006. And so when I saw Bitcoin at that point, I was like, wow, this is a really like updated digital technology. It's an alternative asset class. And it's on the cusp of tech and finance, like very clearly, it's going to change everything. But it wasn't until I read Vitalik's white paper, which basically showed us that, you know, we can build a system that creates digital assets very, you know, with very low cost tokens, that it dawned on me that like, this is like absolutely just a new asset class of new digital assets. And CoinFund is built around the idea that Digital assets are a new asset class. And it was one of the first organizations like out there, you know, to take that position to build a business around that. Yeah, that leads me to my next question. So you had the insight that 
Bitcoin was real and you started to dig into it from a, a scientific mindset, exploring what is the truth. And, and the truth pointed you that this was going to be something worth spending time on. What, what was the insight to actually start investing in crypto and then to form a, an initial fund or, or institution around it, as opposed to maybe just you know, trading your own personal account or founding a, yeah. a protocol on your own? Well, I absolutely did that. I mean, as I said, like one of my one of my earliest kind of like job vocations was working in quantitative trading, right? And so one of the one of the first things I did like in the crypto space was build, you know, essentially an automated like trading bot that would do market making on Bitcoin. When Coinbase launched their exchange back in February of 2014, for a very short amount of time, I was the highest you know, volume trader on that exchange. It was just kind of early. But the insight for me really was that um like I wanted, you know, once I, once I understood the technology, I, I really wanted to work in the space full time and being a technologist, being someone who has worked at Amazon, right. Being like entrepreneurial, kind of the obvious thing to do would be to start a, a crypto startup of some kind and be its, you know, technical founder or co-founder. And I quickly like moved away from that because what I realized is, um, the technology was so early it would have this insane like innovation curve going forward. And if I started a tech startup, it would like almost surely, you know, not work out. Like the, the probability was like stacked against it because of the nascency of the tech. And what I realized is like, I always wanted, you know, to find this like alternative asset class to invest in. And this was actually an opportunity to still be side by side with founders who were building these projects, helping them with the tech, helping them, in a very hands-on way, but having a slightly different risk profile because you're an investor, because you're diversifying across opportunities and because you have a higher level view of what trends, theses, and like processes are, having in, are, are happening in the space. And so what I wanted to then do was to build kind of investment firm that worked really closely with the founders. And by the nature of that, also was extremely knowledgeable about the technology that was being built. It was really like in deep into the technical understanding of what was happening here with blockchains. And so that's CoinFund. So then this was 2015. Walk me through what the first few years looked like with getting CoinFund off the ground and then how that has evolved to you building what it is now, this multi-pronged institution. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a, a crazy journey. We So we started in July of 2015 with this tiny experimental kind of fund vehicle. It was funded with the money of like friends and family, like my dad is the second investor, you know, a couple of my friends from Brooklyn and, and, and so forth. And the idea was that you know, for that fund that, you know, this is going to be a new digital asset class and we're only buying digital assets. And so we started to invest in kind of the public market assets of that period of time. And if you actually like read the coin fund white paper, it's not really available, but if you ever like find it somewhere, you know, you'll notice that it's phrased in terms of cryptocurrencies because the idea of like smart contracts wasn't even on the market really at that, at that point, you know, it wasn't until Ethereum kind of not just launched, but 
kind of came into its own as a network that people sort of reformulated their idea of what like decentralization technology really was. And they reformulated in terms of like smart contracts. And before that, it was just cryptocurrencies. We also did a lot of like working with teams early on in the form of consulting. This is, you know, we work with some of the earliest, you know, teams who were building crypto projects or put token models in the consumer tech context. And that, you know, that enabled us to have a little bit of runway, like support ourselves and, and eventually like start to build out a real firm. And around 2018 in March, we launched our first quote unquote real fund, real meaning in the sense that it was truly an LP fund. It was Cayman Master Feeder and we truly had to go to market and get, you know, real investors to, to bet on us. And what was like super cool was that we got Venrock to bet on us. Venrock, Venrock's David Pakman kind of knew him because he was an advisor to my old tech startup back from the traditional world. He was also on the board of one of the companies that we worked with closely. And David, you know, we, we essentially was like, Hey, like, why don't we kind of do a deal and, and, and we'll work together on some, on some deals. Cause I'm really interested in the crypto area. That deal enabled, you know, it was the first capital that actually enabled us to start building a real company. And then we worked with David for many, many years, every Wednesday at three o'clock to look at, at some stuff together. And Venrock, you know, for example, has investments in Dapper Labs and Ceramic Network. And these are all kind of co-investments that we've made together. And then about a year and a half ago, David Pakman actually moved over to CoinFund. It became our venture investment. So he runs the CoinFund Ventures Fund that we launched last year. And that's looking at series A and B investments in crypto full time. But so back to, you know, kind of back to that era, we launched CoinFund in 2015, which was the depths of the bear market in Bitcoin. If you guys remember like 15, 16, Bitcoin just kind of oscillated between 200 to $400 for two years. And then the ICO boom of 2017 happened. And then right as it crashed, that's when we raised kind of our second fund, CoinFund C2 or CoinFund LP, as we call it, in March of 2018. And then we had a two-year bear market again. <laughs> so it was it was really devastating, actually, because it was, you know, our, our AUM, like, virtually didn't move for two years from the time it launched to the time that we were joined on January 1st, 2020 by Seth Gens, who is our now head of liquid investments. And Seth came on to augment CoinFund's platform with a new strategy, which was a liquid hedge fund discretion and trading strategy. And at that point, we became a multi-strategy firm. Now, 2020 was, you know, a volatile, but also incredibly like amazing year because some of the investments that we made in this bear winter of 2018 and 2019 really came to market that year, really paid off. And this is when CoinFund really started to grow and become a larger organization. And between 2020 and now, you know, we've grown to a company of over 30 people, mostly based in New York, but also I'm down here in Miami with a couple of folks and there's a couple of folks in Boston, Europe and, and West Coast as well. And we've, at this point, we've made something like 150 investments in all matter of bulls and crypto in highly decentralized networks, but also equity companies doing key enabling infrastructure for the space like Blockdaemon and Coinlist. Our team has just incredible experience with the space, with the tech, with the strategies that entrepreneurs have deployed into the market. And, you know, we're exceptionally well capitalized from here and really looking forward to 23, 24, 
as you know a period where we could take all the infrastructure that we've built so far and has matured quite a bit and actually start putting products into the hands of consumers, enterprises, and development teams that are blockchain-based. I've always found the Coin Fund story to be interesting and motivating for those out on the entrepreneurial journey who may have a contrarian perspective, but who go brick by brick. And then if you go brick by brick, ultimately in aggregate, like you'll get a random thing out of left field. That is the next big leap forward. And to me, watching coin fund, what I think of is key hires that have launched new initiatives. So you look at the partnership with Venrock and then bringing David in-house. You look at bringing someone highly sophisticated and well-respected like Seth in-house to run the liquid book. And then more recently, bringing on someone like Chris Perkins from Citigroup to kind of spearhead some of the institutionalization of CoinFund, but then also like managing policy and, and compliance and regulation how like when you're thinking of building out this team and therefore these initiatives what is it in service of like what is the ultimate yeah. goal of building coin fund and what's your ethos on building whatever that goal is i mean the short answer is that we want to be extremely competitive in the crypto fund space so let's take a step back and and look at the crypto fund space for the longest time you know this has been a game of like Will institutions come to crypto to invest? If they come, when will they come? And when they come, who will be able to uh, kind of be their managers and take their, take their capital? And I think for a long time, the first question of like, will institutions come was not answered. It was very unclear. And it really wasn't until, we're in 2023 right now. It really wasn't until two years ago. Blockchain space is 12 years old, right? It wasn't until two years ago that institutions and earnest started writing checks to crypto managers at scale. And everybody is like learning about crypto and wrapping their minds around it. And it was so interesting because when Seth joined, he was saying like, guys, you know, when Bitcoin crosses 20K one more time for the second time, and this is when institutions will start to write checks. And that happened at the end of 2020. But when the institutions really started writing checks was February or March of 21, around the time when NFTs started to be mentioned on Saturday Night Live in the United States, when, when NFTs started to go mainstream, in other words. We thought that was like super interesting. But those institutions that came and, and, and there's a lot of family offices, sovereign wealth, pensions, high net worth individuals who are now extremely caught up to, to crypto and are you know, making investments. Um, the implication of those institutions coming to market to invest means that they want professional managers and professional managers means, you know, you have institutional grade processes like institutional grade IDD, ODD, you might be a larger firm. So you have, you need to have like a more robust organization. You might, you might need to be an RIA if you want to manage uh, bigger capital, RA is registered investment advisor. So it's SEC regulated for a fund of a certain size to be in, right? And and there was this moment in the crypto fund space where there's a lot of extremely successful crypto fund folks out there. There's a lot of people who 
you know, recognized early that there's a lot of potential in this industry. But the turning point of institutional investors was such that now they had to decide, like, are we going to remain a you know, firm of just a few people or are we going to become institutional, which is a much harder problem. It requires a lot more resources, a lot more people, a lot more growth, a lot more traditional knowledge about regulation and, and so on. And I think like from our perspective, we always wanted to build a really forward thinking and long-term mission-driven firm. And that implies that we have to be institutional. We have to take the institutional capital. We have to grow. We have to do all of those things. And that's what we did. And I think like between, you know, maybe about a year ago and now we've just leveled up tremendously as an institutional offering. And we get that feedback. So I want to talk about the current dynamics in the market and the headwinds both on the institutional side and the regulatory side because it seems mm -hmm. like we've broken through that barrier nfts were mentioned on saturday night live the institutions came in sovereign started writing checks and then just as soon as they entered they got burned right there were some of these big institutions that were invested in celsius or ftx obviously anyone who owned any liquid tokens got you know, crushed in 2022 and then now looking at 2023 you know you every day you open up the the newspaper and you see some new regulatory headwinds both on the institution side like what is going to get them to you know come back or may, maybe they haven't left but continue to allocate and and scale up their allocations to the crypto fund and asset management space as well as like in the u.s in particular how are we going to change the narrative on Capitol Hill to be more welcoming to crypto and blockchain? Because I mean, I, right now I see people leaving in spades and, and businesses launching abroad. So what can we do to you know repair the relationship with the government and then bring these institutions back in and keep, keep them comfortable? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I think, so one thing to say is like, we, we definitely take that area, you know, the mature, the maturing of the industry, like very seriously. So Chris Perkins, for example, has done a lot of work with Washington around crypto regulation, legislation, rulemakings. He, he's testified at the CFTC. He just actually recently got onto a, a committee at the, at, at the CFTC that it's examining some of the crypto issues. He, he also, we also have a coin fund as one of our advisors, Christian Carlo, who is a former commissioner of the CFTC who, and, and has written the book Crypto Dad, you know, really kind of a bullish book looking at how we should embrace blockchain and, and cryptocurrency technology in the United States. And so we, we definitely like, want to keep up with this area and also want to give our founders a voice in the processes and the, in the very important processes that are being kind of formed and solidified right now. The negative side of it is that I think like in some ways our, our regulator and administrations that are currently in place, they're not really kind of ready to understand the full depth of, of the technological innovations here and how they might even apply to kind of like self-regulation and things like that. And I, and I don't think that the current administration is, is going for 
legislation that soon, at least not legislation that's comprehensive across crypto. And what's happening is that because there's not like legislative clarity, then what, what happens within kind of the agencies and regulators is that they start to, they, they start to kind of be administrative about maintaining the space. And so you see, you know, some of these headlines from the SEC that they've taken kind of a very strong position that all digital assets are, you know, securities. But, you know, knowing what we know about digital assets, it's really unlikely that that position will will hold water for, you know, in the long term. And that's because, yeah, like some digital assets could be securities, but other digital assets are very clearly not securities or they belong to highly decentralized networks or they don't behave in ways that, you know, we've defined securities to behave. And so one of the outlooks that we have is that we need to get through this kind of tumultuous and difficult period of time where there's a lot of like regulatory pushback that's happening. But we also think that when those administrations change, we might, we might come into like a very, very different world. And, and, and one of the, and what I mean by that is that it will be like much more positive for crypto. We'll be able to engage kind of regulators a lot more on the actual details and issues, you know, faith entrepreneurs in our industry and, and the products of our industry. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we could point to like right now amongst all these sort of scary headlines and crypto companies being a little bit debanked at times is that prices are moving up, right? Like despite the, the negative press, the fundamentals of, of the technology are still there. And, and I think also a lot of this comes on the back of, you know, the unfortunate events of FTX late last year. And in a way, like we want regulators to, <laughs> you know, to come after bad actors, like as, as you saw happen there. And this is what we're seeing right now is a bit of a reaction to that as well. But I think longer term, we're poised for a success, even though it may not totally feel that way regulatorily right now. I thought it was interesting when the news about Paxos and BUSD and, and the SEC regulating by enforcement there, when that happened, you would think that the markets would just crash as everyone would be scared, but rather... BTC and ETH pumped. And I think the reason why is that people were seeking refuge from US dollar denominated stable coins into more decentralized assets like BTC and ETH. So yeah. people don't want to off ramp. Rather, they just want to be in assets they deem safe. And it was interesting to for that to be ETH and BTC. Yeah, with that. We're in a new and paradigm. I remember there was years ago, there was this moment when everybody was waiting for the SEC to approve, you know, the Bitcoin ETF, forget exactly what year that was, it might've been like early 17 or something. And, and I remember just the market like going crazy and like in anticipation and, and it didn't know which way to go. Like it would be jumping a thousand dollars between bids in the Bitcoin order book at that moment. And then the SEC came out with the announcement and they said, the ATF has been denied and it felt like the market was like, man, all right, screw the traditional approach. Let's just go by ETH <laughs> and like, and we'll do it ourselves. Right. And like, and then ETH just went up like crazy. Bitcoin went up like crazy. And it's, it's, it's a little bit like of an arbitrage dynamic, right? Like either 
you guys will play ball or we're going to just go and kind of do it ourselves. And I see that dynamic also playing out, you know, regulatorily inter-country right now, right? So we're talking about CBDCs in the United States. Maybe people know that we're, we are working on it. There is a process that's happening that's working on American US dollar CBDCs. It's not well publicized, perhaps. But at the same time, you know, Vladimir Putin is that we're now embracing crypto in Russia. Venezuela is embracing crypto. Iran, you know, all these countries that really like shouldn't outdo America in terms of technical innovation in the space. And one of like my pains is watching America kind of, you know, waffle a little bit on 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 sensible you know innovation supporting regulation at this and i'll just say you know i talk to founders all the time who are like listen i went and incorporated my company in vietnam or el salvador right because i just don't want to deal with the jurisdictional uncertainty of, of the united states right now and that's fair and by the way el salvador has recently made a play to be an extremely friendly jurisdiction to crypto they passed some laws that not only make Bitcoin the legal tender of the country, but you can now incorporate a crypto company there if you're foreign pretty easily. And there's a law that says digital assets are not securities. And so it's right for innovation as a jurisdiction. Yeah, it's. I think there's a, a confluence of factors that are coming to bear. One with remote work being normalized and therefore this like more nomadic culture that that we've formed and people are now living in different countries and working from there and there really isn't a need to be in the u.s the same way there was historically and i I, every day it seems like i'm talking to founders that are moving to lisbon or who are moving to dubai or who've just hopped on a plane to Hong Kong because it seems like they're relaxing in terms of their crypto policy. So it'll be interesting to track how the U.S. initially reacts to this regulatory arbitrage that seems to be coming to bear. I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about the tech, why we're all here, what's going on, what you're excited about. And you recently wrote a post about AI mm-hmm. and it's obviously the hot button topic chat GPT three, like what well, kind of took the world by storm. I think it had the fastest user growth in, in history of any product. So it's almost like an inflection moment, an iPhone moment. What is the dynamics between crypto and AI? Or have all the industry tourists who were raising money and, and starting businesses with Web3 at the, on their presentation in 2021, now are they all just leaping on the AI bandwagon as another you know, shiny object to, to chase dollars on? What is like real with AI that you're excited about? Yeah. And what is the dynamic with crypto? This is an extremely interesting area and like point in time. And maybe maybe there's... Maybe there's some context, a little bit of context that's in order. And by the way, I'm I'm very squarely like a crypto guy. I'm not an AI expert, but I do know enough math and computer science to be a little bit dangerous in neural networks, and I kind of understand the issues. I'm also a follower of the AI space in general. I have many friends who 
worked in, in the space and we're even at CoinFund, we're invested in Sam Altman's other startup, which is WorldCoin, so crypto, crypto. And so, so just as a little bit of context, I'll just say the following. We're making incredible leaps and, and bounds of progress in AI. Like if you rewind back about 10, 12 years and you ask the you know, world experts on AI, like, like how far away is artificial general intelligence? You know, and by the way, do you think we can create artificial general intelligence by just, you know, increasing the amount of data and increasing the amount of compute? They would kind of laugh us out of the room and they would say, no, man, like artificial general intelligence is just so, it's so complex. Like you need complex models and we probably haven't even invented those yet. And we don't know if we're going to invent those in 10 years from now. And really artificial general intelligence is like 50, hundred years away. And, you know, we're many years away. And what I think OpenAI is showing 10 years later is that, in fact, if you take the idea of a neural network, if you take the idea of some of the ideas around transformers, which is a new kind of model that all these language models and, and general AI models are built on, and you add a lot of compute, which wasn't really even a, that much available until now, and if you add a lot of data, then what you start to see is that these models develop you know, a kind of very impressive intelligence in a, in a very general way. So we thought like, we thought like before we had to have like very targeted models that do specific tasks. And now it turns out that chat GPT can translate languages, but that's an emergent property of just being a language model. Nobody ever programmed it to do that. And that's incredibly, you know, interesting. And so this idea of like the scaling hypothesis, the idea that if you add enough compute and data to some of these, like, pretty simple models, then you can emerge intelligence out of it is really new. And it has really shortened that kind of expectation of AGI. And so when you talk to like serious investors who spent a lot of time in this, in this space, you know, they'll tell you AGI is probably four to 10 years away, not a hundred. And that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. So what does this all have to do with web three? Well, AI people and web three people are a very, very different set of communities. But what we're starting to see is that there's a convergence. Like, for example, one of the most famous papers on AI in recent memory, it's about five years old, it's called Attention is All You Need. It's a paper that defines this transformer model that has led to all this innovation. If you look at the last author of that paper, well, it's actually Ilya Polosuhin, who's the CEO of Near Protocol, right? So Ilya was, was at Google doing AI before he went into crypto. And if you look at Stability AI, Imad Mustake, who's the CEO of Stability, he was a crypto founder in 2017. That's how we know it, right? And so he's working this. And so there's like people who are starting to be knowledgeable kind of on, on both sides of the fence here. And if you, again, if you look at Stability, what they've done is they've, they've basically said, why should big tech companies own these models in proprietary ways. We could do so much more innovation if there were, if this was like an open effort. And what Stability did was they released Stable Diffusion, which was kind of like a, you know, kind of a Dolly, Dolly 2 style generative image model. And they fully open sourced the process by which they created it, the data by which they created it, and the, and the actual model itself and its weights. And what we've seen is that the innovation around generative AI just went hyperbolic. Because like it used to be years before, you know, Google would invent something and then an equivalent would come out in open source. But between Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion, it was 
the difference between January 2022 and August 2022. So like six months. It's, we've made that period super short. And then as soon as it was released, just a few months later, you could take Stable Diffusion, download it onto your Mac M1 laptop and create local AI outputs of images, right? Like this is just incredible progress. And, and I'm not even mentioning like all of the kind of open sourceware that has developed around kind of the creative process of generative AI. And so when we think about like, what does Web3 add to AI? We think of Web3 as being kind of openness technologies. The data sets, very important that those are open. I mean, they're open today. They're created by nonprofit organizations. And those data sets are used by even big proprietary tech companies like Google to make these models. Then it's computation. The computation of AI models, and the, which is called training, and then the ability to compute the outputs of the models, which is called inference, those are all kind of expensive things to do. And so what we're starting to see is that decentralized networks for computation are picking up that problem because these networks, they could provide the compute at like significantly lower costs than you would get them from like Amazon or Google Cloud, right? Like it eats into the margins of, of, of that process. And finally, there's a bunch of like product intersection with, with Web3. Like for example, you know, you can imagine in the future, we're going to be generating NFTs from generative AI outputs, or you might actually be interacting with ChatGPT, not just through OpenAI's proprietary servers, but through a smart contract in a permissionless and trustless way. And there's people working on that. And so what I could tell you is we've spent a lot of time in this area. We are, CoinFund already has an investment from, I believe, 2021 in a company called Jensen.ai, G-E-N-S-Y-N.ai. And these guys are working on decentralized networks for model training. And then more recently, zero knowledge technology has kind of enabled model computation to go on chain. So the problem with, with model computation is it's very computationally intensive and a blockchain can't in its, it's, it's a very low power computer. It can't itself perform that computation. The computation has to be performed off chain. But if you're giving it to someone else to compute, how do you know it's correct? That's called the verification problem. And now as zero knowledge primitives are maturing, it actually turns out that you could solve the verification problem by creating a zero knowledge proof that your model computed the output correctly. And as soon as you can do that, you could start to use model outputs in smart contracts and trust this permissionless way. And what's super exciting about that is that you can, yeah, like there's so many applications of that. It really opens up the expressibility of smart contracts. It opens up the capability of smart contracts. You could imagine smart contracts that do automated KYC, right? Like you upload a picture of your license. They take a picture of you and an AI model compares, like are these faces the same? Kind of in a, you know, in a face ID sort of way. You can imagine trustless NFT systems like NounsDAO but, you know, with outputs created from a model and so on and so forth. I think like, this is just one of the most exciting developments for smart contracts, but also for the openness of creating these kind of innovative AI approaches that are out there in the broader world. There's one, if you were to make like one of those word bubble charts where when someone interacts with 
any of the AI applications now, I bet probably the, the most common word is, wow, this is so cool or cool. The second word I bet is scary. And I think, you know, there's computers just now seem so smart and so competent and all knowing that it creates the issue of trust and that people are scared and they don't trust what is being built. How does crypto, which is built to be open and be immutable and to be permissionless and to be trustless in that, like you don't need to trust any centralized entity or individual. What does crypto unlock with AI in terms of enabling trust for the user such that we can mold AI to be something that is positive for society that we can trust and use to improve our lives? That's a great question. I mean, I think I think one really straightforward thing is probably what we covered just before, which is you can kind of create proofs of provenance of where outputs come from. And, and so you kind of have like strong guarantees about which model produced the outputs. There's probably like a complementary problem of like, how do I know that I'm talking to like a human versus a model output? But there's actually interestingly like models that can tell you that, like there's models that can detect deep fakes or whether a an essay was like generated by a by a language model and stuff like that. So we'll see models on both sides and we'll see kind of verification that the content that's being presented to us is, you know, what it says it is. I think the other maybe like the other thing to think about is is just governance, right? So like we've heard from create that some creators, for example, some artists are not fully satisfied with the fact that you know, their art got pulled into the training set of generative image models. And there's even some lawsuits going on right now. Like I think Getty is suing stability of using some copyrighted images like in their training. And so this brings us back to like, well, okay, like what's it, what's acceptable use as it comes to like neural network training. And then it brings us to like, well, should we have a different model where Maybe there's a DAO and creators, like some creators will say, listen, you're not allowed to use anything, any work by me. And then there might be other creators who say, I'm excited if you use work by me, but I want a royalty in that process. And there might be still other folks who are like, I want to donate my work to the, you know, to the model training. And that is a, you know, that's a complex piece of governance that arguably should be codified in a governance process. And what better technology for that than, you know, the DAOs and, and, and token voting and things like that, especially in context where you can create fair compensation for fair use and things like that. You are a creator yourself. You've launched a, a few NFT projects and have, have definitely demonstrated that other side of your brain as well, the more creative side. And tying it back to the start of this conversation as we're, we're, we're near time here. What are you early to and excited by on the NFT creator side? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there's, I'll mention a couple of things. So one is that like one of my core theses in, in the NFT space is that, you know, NFTs themselves are not just art or collectibles or in-game assets. 
NFT technology are really like financial rails for non-fungible assets. And those non-fungible assets could be a diversity of things. It could be, you know, everything we see today, but it could also be like all manner of digital content, fonts, icons, movies, music, and so forth. And then it could also extend to non-fungible assets in the real world, like the, you know, the deed to your house or car, or motorcycle, and all these assets can go on chain and be subject to the finance that we create about NFTs. Now, the core thesis that I've had about NFT finance or NFT financialization is that we need reference pricing. If we can create a way, if we had like a magical oracle that could just tell us like a reasonable price that this item would probably reasonably sell on the market for, you know, soon, um, then those prices become extreme efficiency technology for a suite of financialization products. So you can imagine then building an, an NFT AMM that can you know, trade any NFT for any other NFT because you know their price. You can imagine NFT indices. You can imagine borrowing protocol, which automatically evaluates your NFT collateral, gives you a loan. In fact, we have a company in our portfolio called Moon Mortgage, which is giving real world mortgages on top of crypto collateral. And eventually some of that collateral might be NFTs and so on and so forth. And so we've invested in a company called Upshot, which has built a machine learning model that pr today prices something like 100 million individual NFTs based on their historical data, historical trading, like who their creators are and, and their historic performance and so on. And so that's one area I'm like really excited about is because I'm not even sure that the NFT participants understand the extent to which the NFT space will be financialized in, like this year and in the future. And it'll just create like all these new opportunities for a fundamental activity in the space. And the other, the other thesis that I was early to, like, you, you know, you point out that I'm a, I'm a, I'm an artist in the NFT space. I've, yeah, I've been doing like digital art all my life. It's one of the things that drew me to the space back in, in the early days when I saw like rare Pepe's on Counterparty in 2016 and was like, oh man, one day there's going to be like a big NFT space. But what was interesting is that the NFT space came to market through digital art. Like that, those were the original use cases that for years people touted. And then in February or so of 21, it started to take off. And then when that market started to take off, we actually saw a takeover like most of the GMV in NFT started to be explained by collectibles, not art. Art became a little bit of a, of a shrunk, like it kind of shrunk relatively to the other, relative to the other activity in the NFT space. And from where we sit today in, in February of 23, it's actually very interesting because the creators like haven't gone away. There's still a very strong thesis that creators want to create you know, their creations in the form of digital assets. And then they want to engage their audience directly instead of seeking platforms like, like YouTube or in art or whatever, you know, wherever it might be. And so it's almost like there's a few companies now, maybe like super rare foundation, others that are still very much focused on independent creators, but the, but the set, but the market segment is very different now from what the rest of the NFT space is doing. It's just trading board apes and punks and collectibles and things like that. And so kind of one of my theses that I think we're early to right now is that the creator segment has a lot of like growth and juice left, left in it.
And I think that's really it. Super cool. Wrapping up here, we, we like to end with something that should come natural to you is contrarian spicy takes. So then, what is your most contrarian spicy take within crypto? That's a good question. I tweeted recently that, you know, I said hot take. It's only a matter of time before NFTs kind of like leave Ethereum. Like if you look at sort of historically, like most NFTs, there's like a severe power law where like most NFTs live on Ethereum. But in recent years, we've seen Solana kind of come up as a as an NFT GM, like significant contributor to NFT GMV. We've seen other independent networks like Immutable kind of create products directed at NFT projects. And, and in general, we, we're living in a world where like the number of chains is going up dramatically and the number of kind of interoperability links between those chains going up dramatically and exponentially. And so I, I kind of expect NFTs to decouple from Ethereum at some point and be their own almost like independent cross-chain standard. And there's actually a, a number of companies right now that are working on what's known as omni-chain NFTs. It's NFTs that don't live on a particular chain, but you could materialize them on a particular chain if you need to like trade them there or something like that. So a lot of people like don't like that view. They're like, no, 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 no. Ethereum is the home of NFTs. But realistically, I think I think we'll see we'll see some expansion there. And that outside of crypto, well, I don't spend that much time outside of crypto, you know. But but I actually I think you know my take on AGI is still pretty contrarian. So even though Open AI is making these you know making a lot of technological progress, I think there are still like a lot of people out there who are like. Guys, these are just statistical models and language. This is not conscious. This is not sentient. You know, like this gives wrong outputs at times, right? And there's a lot of people who are very skeptical that large language models, you know, can get to a level of like intelligence. I actually think I'm like totally opposed to that view. I think that when GPT-4 comes out, <clears throat> we're going to see some immense progress in the intelligence of you know, chat GPT and how we can interact with it. I think it will become a lot more obvious that we're just on that, like beginning of that journey of adding compute, optimizing the models, maximizing the data set. And we're not even like 30% of the way there, like over the next five to 10 years, we're just going to like make these models just so much, so much smarter than they are. But like the scary thing is that even now with these quote unquote dumb models, these models are demonstrating incredible emergent properties, like like theory of mind, right? To, like theory of mind is the idea that, you know, like you have a model of what someone else is thinking. And there's experiments that you can run with ChatGPT that demonstrates that ChatGPT has emerged the theory of mind. I mean, there's just like crazy stuff going on here. And like people are almost like not seeing it. Yeah, the, the future is a lot closer than I think many realize. And I know le leaving today's show, I personally can't wait to formulate the show notes for this conversation because there's a ton to to dig into <laughs> and, and, and research from here. So Jake, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your insights into the broader market and the development of CoinFund and the institution it is today. So uh, thanks again for coming on and you know, we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ben. My pleasure. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. 
Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Seniors Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.